arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. I'm foregoing the opening tonight and let the action speak for itself as we march toward the end of Sojourn. This is Robert P. Fitton. Thank you for being involved in this long novel. Next week, we'll start another Matthias Jones book called The Life and Times of Charlie Diaper. So as they say, let's let it roll. Chapter 87. As he stood in Garrold's vessel, Loftus was stunned that the crowd and the torches pressed down the dock along the stone retaining walls. He heard cheering and watched the guards form a chain to the guampus carts under the multicolored banners. How can this be? They are trusting you to save the planet, said Zuni. Your time has come, Captain. John put his hand on Loftus's shoulder and then embraced him. This isn't my time, said Loftus, gripping the Tolton's cruxel. It is the time for Tabun Shah and the people of this planet boat coasted through the still waters parallel to the wooden pier, and a man threw out a thick line to one of Jasmine's men. Loftus studied the hundreds of hopeful faces. They sang a solemn hymn that reverberated back to the enclave, but beneath the jubilation of his arrival, they were probably scared and hoped that his actions would save their lives. Guards jumped to the dock and lowered a wood ladder to Jasmine's boat. He stayed in the bobbing boat with Zuni and John. Gerald was seated above in a tall Camino. Loftus was instructed to climb into the Camino. The mass cheered as he stepped onto the dock. Some were calling him Tabun Shah. These people have to realize I'm only a man. You have to overlook what they might or might not be thinking, said Zuni. Focus on getting to the Noma. Focus. Focus on Abishah. Loftus nodded and helped her up the Camino steps. Are you sure the Eskas believe I can effect a change here? Yes. Zack leaned over from the rear carriage. More than you bargained for, Captain. Loftus nodded as the driver cracked the whip and the Guampus nudged forward. The Camino creaked and rocked around the pier. John sunk back into the Camino. He hugged Loftus and cried into his jersey as the Camino passed the cheering epic citizens. He hugged John tightly. You're my son and I love you. We need to face the future together. The crowd cheered and repeated the words. Surya Khan, Surya Khan. Loftus tightened his face in the cool air and slowly stood. The hymn followed him along the cobblestones. He stared at the faces in the torchlit windows and along the fences. These people connected him in a way he would have never imagined. He extended his hand to his son and pulled him up. Another crowd was crammed into the enclave across from the Noma steps. Zuni slowly smiled and nodded. Loftus thought back to the Creod attack of his youth. He was running by the river and his father was wounded. One of the creatures lay dead in the sand and yellow blood oozed from his green shell skin. As the Camino slowed near the Noma steps, he studied the intricate carvings and the smooth statues. He remembered his father placing the Bunshoff, now resting atop the larger Bunshoff at Abishah, into his little hands. 
We will enter the Noma now, said Garrow. Loftus nodded and the Camino stopped at a corridor of amber-uniformed guards holding back the crowd. The people chanted, Surya Khan, as the guards helped Garrow down the stairs. Loftus hoisted Zuni down and moved beside her. The guards pushed the group toward gray-robed tendrils gathered inside the open Noma doors. The noise dissipated once he entered the sweet-smelling, glossy corridor. Loftus walked with Zuni behind Gerald. These people will be demanding results. It is not important in this matter what the people want, Loftus. It is only important that you carry out what was conceived before you were born. I understand. His own mother's face from long ago was vivid in his memory as he passed the long, colorful murals and statues of Mantari warriors. He felt safe inside the Noma. They veered left toward the Noma's sanctuary doors. Guards opened the doors quickly as they approached, revealing a cluster of eskers resonating in their white robes at the candle-lit altar. On a gold pedestal was a red-bound saber. Loftus moved ahead of the others, knelt near the pedestal and raised his fingertips to his temples. Time trickled as he cleared his mind. Minutes or even hours could have passed. One of the eskers gripped the book edges. His slow, shaky cadence was difficult to hear. Sabun delicior melrum. In the beginning was the end, and the end was the beginning, and part of the whole. Through the ages the call went out. It rings true past the millennium in the frozen corridors of time. Trust in what Taban Shah has given you. Trust in the days ahead. Trust that the enemy will be stopped. Resonate. Resonate. Let your minds ascend Abishah. Seek the point of departure, which is the end of all worlds. Follow the fallen Mantari warriors. Find the slopes and enter time's door to the reflection. There are no ends and no beginnings. Open the pool of forever. Open your hearts. Open your hearts and resonate. Sabun. In a gradual transformation, the candles and white robes blurred into a haze over the sun. An extended chant moved the eskers away with the light, leaving only the sound of Loftus's heart pounding in the darkness. The weightless drift brought a certain calm to his turmoil, and he slowly sunk into a light sleep. A trickling breeze awakened him. He grasped the cruxel tightly as heightened red limes formed before his eyes. The massive clear bunshoff materialized at the end of the reflective pool. His boots rested squarely on the white slab as the full starry sky brightened above the sharp-edged peaks. Goosebumps traveled in waves over his arms and legs as he started along the pool. He focused on the upper circle. Although he could not see his own bunch off, he wondered what would happen when he placed the cruxel around it. What was Tabin Shah, and why did they hide? The ability of a race or even an individual to predict events in millennia was beyond comprehension. He accelerated along the pool, 
nearing the point where the red beams converged in alignment with the reflective star pattern above. The Bunshoff hovered, only a few hundred yards away. His own Bunshoff remained suspended in the center of the white tube circle. He slowed, dwarfed by the sheer magnitude of the structure. Again he moved his hand toward the smooth clear surface and stepped inside the substrate. He easily began his ascent and passed through the warped space of what appeared to be a solid object. The light was fuzzy near the top, but when he finally exited, the straight beams crystallized brilliantly before his eyes. The beam swept downward upon his firmly scented Bunshoff, and the pool below reflected the stars and mountain peaks. He positioned the inner edges of the Tolton's cruxel and lifted it like a docking spacecraft to his own suspended Bunshoff. The forces within the transparent circle drew the cruxel from his hands and snapped snugly into place around the smaller Bunshoff. The red beams were immediately transformed and a complex color myriad emanated outward. Loftus moved through the large Bunshoff and ran onto the pool slab. A thin black line now divided the pool's surface from beam contact points, and colored light bands swung up like a tornado from the pool as the surface line separated. The once reflective green pool soon became a mass of escaping energy. Loftus shielded his eyes and scrambled back along the slab, but forces dragged him toward the light. He fought an inevitable tug toward the undulating white light. For several minutes he was taken by a stiff, warm wind until he found himself lying on a cold stone extrusion rounding into a carved valley stuck with evergreens below. Heavy gray clouds hung over a heightened yellow horizon surrounding the granite domes. Loftus cupped his hands. Where am I? Where are you? He remained on the cold rock as the wind shot up the canyon. Why have you brought me here? With his fingers at his temples, he resonated for Taban Shah. After all this time, he could not accept their absence. He fixated on present-day Earth, now without choices and challenges. Time, like clouds above the horizon, seemed frozen and lifeless. His body chilled as he paced the stone dome. He constantly called out for Taban Shah but he was unsure he would even return to the Bunshoff and eventually the Noma. He figured several hours had passed when he first saw movement in the pale yellow glow beyond the gray horizon clouds. The developing pattern was like nothing he had ever seen and defied rational description. As he spread forth his arms, the clouds were covered with a thousand pulsating patches. Tell me, are you Tobin Shaw? The gentle response was generated within his own thoughts. You have followed your heart, Trevor. I never asked for this. Yet you have done the right thing. We are forever in your debt. I don't understand why you remain in hiding. Why not come out and face the invaders? We have left the bounds of your perception. It is the inevitable way of all beings, whether through death or advancement. We are a combined consciousness, here through resonating. We feel the pain of existence. Then why do you allow pain? We do not allow pain. We are only part of the upper realities. 
all who call out will be heard. You cannot see the upper realities, but they do exist. Loftus shook his head. I don't understand any of this. Come out and defeat the Creods. You have let millions of innocent people die. Not the end, but the beginning for them. Forgive me that from my limited perspective, I again don't understand any of this. Another tiny version of the clear Bunshaf materialized in his hands. What is this? You are trying to reason with facilities within your limited perspective. Then tell me what I'm supposed to do. Trust. No, you should have done all this after Galga. Why wait all this time? Why allow all the death and pain? And now you want me to simply return to the planet with this Bunshaf? There is no time here. Yet the Kriog Rubicons are nearing the ability to pass into the upper realities now. You are the intervening force. We assure you pain and suffering does exist, but only where you are. There is a higher commonality. It is a part of the whole. Only from that context does perception make sense. Loftus gripped the little Bunshaf. It makes no sense to me. Then you must believe our words are true. So, he said grinning, you are saying that you need me. We need each other. His throat tightened and he pressed his lips as he gazed skyward. What can this Bunshaf do? The Bunshaf is the instrument to prevent the hordes from traversing the upper realities. You must defeat them. So this Bunshaf will stop them. He held it up against the rough gray sky. Trust your convictions and follow your heart. How? They are beginning to bring their larger vessels through the passageway onto the planet. Let Sard fall prey to his own self-importance, and this Bunshaf will allow him to sow his own destruction. You will bring the Bunshaf to him. You will find, Trevor, to be defeated by your own ambition is the greatest humiliation. Loftus gripped the Bunshaf. The morning sun burst in his eyes when he turned. He was next to a small tent overlooking rolling hills and a sinewy tree with yellow leaves. John stood at the tent entrance and raced across the grass when he saw Loftus. Tom, you've been gone. What happened? It's hard to explain. Where are we? Well outside the epic. We were told by the Eskers to journey out here. On this spot, we've been traveling for 11 days. Incredible. What's that? asked John. Loftus again stared at the clear Bunshaf reflecting in the sunlight. I have been told that this will stop them. Well, what happened in the Noma? You faded. You were gone. What about Tobin Shah? Zack scampered through the grass. Captain, they said you'd be here by this tree. Did you see Tobin Shah? I'll get to that. What's beyond the hills, Zack? They're out there, on the plains, thousands of them, and ships. I don't know how. They're not coming from the sky. Loftus visualized the glowing entities from only moments before. They've used the passageway, and they're going to bring their whole fleet through. They don't need a fleet to destroy this planet, said John. True, said Loftus. There's a larger purpose here. I was above a mountain valley. For a long time I heard voices inside my head and across the sky, 
Tabanshar in some higher reality and afraid the Kriots would unlock their secret. Dead? asked Zack. Yes and no, I'm not sure. It was as if they were saying it was all the same to be dead as it was to exist in this higher reality. They claimed that all the suffering and pain could be eliminated by their instruments in this reality. I am the instrument, he said, raising the little bunshaw. I am supposed to bring this to the Creod leader, Sard. Why? asked John. Is it an explosive device? They told me that this will aid Sard in being destroyed by his own ambition. I guess that's why we're out here near those troops. Somehow the Creods are coming through the passageway, and this will enable them to bring their larger ships through. Captain, why would we want them to bring their ships through? asked Zack. Loftus furrowed his brow. Zacky, I don't know. Zuni's blonde hair filled the tent opening. She smiled when she saw him. He felt a warm feeling when he gazed into her blue eyes and sensed her strong presence. I'm still in one piece. Emotion took her voice. You await your destiny. Loftus was reluctant to admit it. I was only in the Noma a few hours ago in my mind. I have seen evidence of Tabun Shah. She raised her hand to her mouth. Then you understand. I saw only patches of light and heard them talk within my head. They're part of an upper reality. This is true, she said. She looked at the Bunshaw placed it in her hands and grinned. I have to give this to the Creod leader. You must do what your heart tells you to do. And help them bring their vessels through the passageway? She squeezed his hand. You must trust in Tom and Shah, and not how things might seem. That is very hard to do. Loftus peered over the rocks at the thousands of blue tents covering many miles of grassy plain. Even at this distance, the large shell creods bothered him. Not only did he remember the killings at Bathurst, but his awareness of his own father's deadly confrontation festered a vengeful hatred within him. Chapter 88 Sard hovered over the tactical Nakedom. Tark's readings were identical to the same formations during the last few roars. His foremost concern was the emergence of the Tabun Shah, while his amperage still remained locked within the passageway. He pounded the console and grabbed his fram. Sard demands to know why the opening cannot be expanded. Margaret Emnath, said one of his Rupacons. Tark is working out of the Prussian portals, realigning the projections to the Urkum. Sard wishes to speak with him directly. It will be done, Vargad said the voice for the Fram. Sard's fangs were exposed as Elkin moved inside the Ankita. He paid homage and stood quickly. Elkin, Selverts are still transporting Weskums through the portal. What bothers me is Roik's Frucian readings away from this Urkum. Sard gazed across the rows of Ankitas and Selvets in battle engagements in the open area. We have checked the area and find nothing. Then how do you explain such readings so similar to the readings in the Humea after Galga? Where is Sard's Awas? Sard, this is Tark. Awas, Sard has been patient and lacks your knowledge. But he must tell you of the great vulnerability he feels with only Wascombs and a few Pizikars on the Circum. 
Waging a fight on the ground with three million Selvits is not an easy undertaking. I understand that, Alice. And Sarge Selvits can be exposed to the Tarbanshar attacks from the sky. Alice, we are close to testing the new alignments and are using Pequot directly from the passageway to expand the Frucian portal. When? Asked Sarge, scanning Elkin. Before the roar is out, if I accelerate. You will inform Sarge when you are ready. It will be done, answered Tark. Sarge's matrix is dimmed as he stood fully. Sarge Awis will fulfill the ancient yearnings. Sarge tells you, Elkin, before the roar has ended. The Aragosta will emerge through the portal. He marched past a Selvic contingent training with Westics in the center arena. They watched as he removed his own Westic and took on two of the younger Selvits. He held them at bay and pierced out their Saurine several times. Margademnus! called Roik, and he fell to his knees. Sard heard him, but he did not stop until he had backed one of the Selvits into the corner. He scanned the young Selvit and thrust his sword through his midsection. Yellow Saurine sprayed out as the Selvit buckled and fell face down in the grass and dirt. You will learn the importance of training. You will all learn how not to die. Sard placed his Westick back in the sheath and moved quickly toward Roik. Sard wishes to be informed of his Awis's progress. Tark is ready to expand the Frucian portal. Sard is heartened. They are waiting for you next to the portal, Vargademnus. You will accompany Sard. Yes, Vargademnus. Sard did not shield his eyes with the Mantariazos above the horizon's rolling hills. The Selvits fell in homage as he and Roik headed toward the vast alignment of Wascoms and Pizikars now across the plains. The thin portal line slowly widened into a tight reflective arch connected to the passageway tunnel. Sard wishes to enter the portal. Tark has told me we run a risk, Vargademnus. He is using tremendous Pequa from the passageway Frucian. Sard has faced danger before. Vargademnus, this may be an unnecessary danger. Sard will not be weak. He stormed by the falling Selvic guards near the reflection. The gritty ramp cut through the rock-lined walls lining the opening. Tark stood with numerous rupacons below a translucent white dome. Heavy white conduit pipes stretched toward the outlines of the massive Aragosta on the distant green passageway. Awis, are you ready to open the portal wide? Tark scanned to his left. I cannot allow you in here. Only a few Selvig volunteers will help me extend the portal. Sard will stay also. There's a chance that this people will not be contained. You are more valuable outside. Would you shirk your duties, command the Aragosta, and join your Selvins? Sard will always fight by his Selvins. You cannot be spared. I have instructed the other Rupacons to stay on the Urkum while I test this device. They will be prepared to help you should anything happen to me. It's unlikely, but I will mention it. All readings indicate we can utilize the peak or contained in this passageway. Sard will honor your request. We are ready and soon, said Tark, gazing back to the massive Aragosta. And we will have our amperage aligned about this Urkum. We will be checking the Humea for the Tabat Shah. The Frucian readings continue away from the Urkum, yet we see nothing. Apparently they had this ability after Golga, said Tark. Sard will eliminate the last vestige wherever they are. Glory to the realm! Glory to the realm! 
Sard moved onto the ramp. He set his matrix shield to dim the Azos above the outside hills. He is brilliant, Royk. Eurawis subdued an entire Mantari Urkum. When Sard is done here, he will travel back across the passageway and eliminate all life on Mantari Earth. A valiant course, Vargadamnus. Sard stepped through the portal and into the cooler outside air. He scanned the bright blue sky and shook his head. So much sky, too little clouds. We will return to the home Urkum in triumph, Vargadamnus. And spread throughout the Umea, said Sard, and the Selvet fell to his knees on the way back to his Ankita. Elkin remained near the tacticals. Tark is finishing preparations, Elkin. A great deal of Piqua will be expended, said Elkin. I trust by the rising of the Mantari Azos, the Aragosta will pass through the portal. Sard nodded and again studied the space tacticals of the Urkum. Waves of displacement, yellow and orange on the blue screen, emanated from empty space not too far from the Urkum. They hide. My Aoas is convinced they hide in the fruition away from this Urkum. Sard will find and destroy them. Sard, said Tark over the frame. When the final Rubicons are evacuated, I will begin a slow Pequot surge from the passageway. Sard approves your action. The tacticals were now filled with Azakar projections, including the Aragoster and other larger Azakars. As he waited for Tark to enlarge the opening, Sard thought about the space displacement. His fram sounded. Bargain Emnus, said Broik. Broaska's report a group of Mantari have been captured outside the camp. Do not bother Sard with such trivial matters. Kill them and be done with it. It is reported the Mantari carry relics of the Tavern Shah. All inferiors must die, shouted Sard. He kicked the console. Elkin looked over from the forward Nakedim. Bargadimnus, Pequot increases have begun inside the portal. Tark reports the opening is widening. Sard is pleased. He activated his fram again. Break. Yes, Margaret Sard wishes to know more about these Tabanshar relics. I will rescind the death orders. Sard hurried over to Elkham's Nakedom. Spiraling red waves pushed through the representation of the passageway as the opening slowly expanded. Garagosta will be out by the next roar. Sard, I am more concerned about your worrying about the Tabanshar relics, said Elkin. Sard will use whatever he needs and then kill the inferior. Margaret Emnes, said Royk on the frame. Sard hears you. The Inferior claims to have the power to bring through the Amperage. Sard slowly looked up. Sard wishes to view the relics. It will be done, Margaret Emnes. Sard wondered why the spiral light from the passageway was now stuck in front of the opening. Tark, what is wrong? Ours, the power will not open the portal wider. Then close the connection. We cannot. Sad will send Rupercons inside to help you. No, answered Tark through the static. We have begun reversal. Sard is having trouble understanding you. The portal is not usable until the upper Pico flow subsides. On the screen, the spiral bands expanded. Alkin, what is the problem? Too much power, and I wonder if he can reverse it. Elkin looked at the red spiral spewing onto the dirt and grass. Absurd! shouted Sarad, rushing from the Ankita. He moved across the grass near the burgeoning red light. Reduce Pequa levels, Tark. We cannot hear him, said Elkin on the fram. 
Sarge shielded his matrices at the red light as a loud clanging resounded from the portal. Get him out! Vargard Emnes, get back! yelled Elkin from behind. Sarge will not let his hours die. Elkin reached him and held his shoulders as he yelled through the noise. There's nothing you can do! Clear the area! Interior readings are nearing critical! No, Sard will not let his hours die. We must go back, shouted Elkin, and he pulled on Sard's appendage. No! Sard slammed him to the ground and rushed into the light. As he neared the red hazy opening, his movement slowed. He held his receptors as the sound bore into his head. Finally, he staggered back and ordered everyone away from the portal. Although he had no Nakedom as he retreated, the clanging accelerated with a Pequa burst, and the red light shook the ground, taking the dirt and a few Ankitas into an ascending dark cloud. The linear displacement in the arch portal vanished below the rising smoke. The portal is now closed with the amperage inside, said Elkin. Tark was inside that explosion. Sod clamped his graspers. We must reopen the portal. How? With what? We have no Pequa from the passageway. Sard gazed back again. Find the Rupikans. We must get that amperage out. Chapter 89 Loftus was not surprised. Everyone was now within the Creod containment field. A few silver-suited creatures guarded the field as the small craft descended and raised the dust. I wonder why we haven't been killed, said John. I don't think we will be, said Loftus. What did they call him? The Bargat Emnis? It is the Boonshaf, said Zuni. John crossed his arms, and the promise of bringing their fleet through. Loftus nodded and kept his eyes on the cluster ship. The outer hatchway slid upward, and a huge creature in a silver suit with colored bands on his upper arm stepped forward. As he scanned the tent, blue light pulsed from under his fist-sized mesh eyes. Every creod knelt in presence. Loftus could not understand what he was saying. His words, now in English spewed forth from a hidden speaker. You will tell Sard what you have as Tarbanshar relics. Loftus fell to his knees as Sard approached. I am in your service, Varganemnus. Why does an inferior pay homage to Sard? I respect your power, said Loftus, still on his knees. Zack's dark eyes opened wide. I am here to help you, Varganemnus. I have found the Tabanchar cowards, claiming to be saviors of the Mantari race, yet they remain hidden. Where? Where are they hidden? asked Sard. I reached them through the ancient words. On Mount Abishah, Sard's hesitation made Loftus wonder if he was confused. I do not know where the ancient words brought me. Sard has found time and displacement above this Urkham in space. Sard does not care for the ancient words. You will bring me to this Abishar. I would rather show you my goodwill, Vargademnus. Sard needs the goodwill of no one. Loftus reached into his pocket and lifted the small bunshaf towards Sard. A replica of the Tabanshah monolith. It will allow your fleet to pass onto the planet. Or destroy it. His long pink fangs pushed along his mouth. Then kill me now, Vargademnus. Sard tilted his large head. Loftus could see a thin yellow tongue inside his mouth. You're in respect from Sard. Bring it to your scientists. Sard will not touch the relic of Tabanshar. You will come with Sard in the Waskum. 
I desire my friends to accompany me, said Loftus. Bring them, ordered Sard, and he walked from the tent. One of the creatures released the surrounding field, and Sard stood near the tent flap. You will follow Sard. Sard rewards those who are loyal, even inferiors, as is ours did. Loftus raised his brows to his friends and crossed his fingers. Then he walked outside and stood next to the towering alien. Not only had this creature been alive for thousands of years, he commanded the power of his people across the galaxy. Loftus stayed behind as Sard neared the open ship's hatch. Other creatures again fell to their knees as Sard stepped up the tiny ramp. Loftus uncomfortably shuffled behind him. The ship had a pungent mustard scent, was dimly lit, and everything was oversized. His feelings ranged from extreme hatred of the race to an annoying discomfort with this odd creature but he marveled at being inside an alien vessel. I've never seen anything like this. You will be silent and sit next to Sard with your bonus off. The others will sit with Roy. Loftus sat on a long, sleek, black-covered seat large enough to accommodate a horse. Under the sloping window span was a brightly lit control panel with strange alien lettering. Sard plopped his prodigious frame into the adjacent seat and studied the controls with his blue mesh eyes. Loftus turned as Royk brought the others aboard. Zack rolled his eyes as he passed while John stared at Sard and Zuni gazed into Loftus's eyes before retreating back. Sard placed his spindly green fingers around wide padded floor sticks once the hatchway was shut. A restraining force field similar to what Loftus felt back in the tent surrounded his chest cavity and the engine's smooth hum lifted the wascom off the ground. Sard seemed to enjoy maneuvering the craft manually over the tent-covered planes. We are a superior race. It would appear that way, said Loftus. And you are not like the other inferiors. Sard never trusts anyone who does not display courage. Most inferiors cower and allow themselves to be conquered. Sard respected the Tabachar until they fled. Where are they? I have not been killed because you think I can lead you to Taban Shah. Sard's upper lip vibrated. Sard will see if you are telling the truth. Loftus watched Sard move the controls. By maneuvering the grips in a certain direction with his oversized hands, Sard made the Wascom respond. I have never understood, Bargain Emnes, why Taban Shah was hostile to the realm. They attacked Sard's home, Merkum. His fangs shot out as he spoke. They held Creon's hostage to their inferior ways, while the Manteri Selvitz killed millions. What brought the conflict about? They disputed where we placed our outpost. They had no right. With power and control between civilizations, the strong always win. I have seen it on my own planet, said Loftus. Sard manipulated the sticks and the Wascom slowed. He began a vertical descent. Sard understands power. It is the nature of all beings to want power in their own way. Inferiors do not understand. I understand. I would never have brought this to you if I did not understand power. Sard does not fully trust you. I do not like men who do not tell me things as they are. You do not speak as an inferior. The Wascom gently nudged toward the ground. The restraining field moved away from Loftus and Sard stood. Sard will now test your assertion. I assure you, I can do what I say I can do. 
The outside hatch opened and Loftus moved with Sard down the ramp. Sard's sword rattled in the sheath as he walked onto the planet. The fresher outside air was a relief from the intense odor inside. More tents were lined in perfect symmetry across the sunlit plains. He followed Sard into the large blue tent. Several creods turned as he moved through the opening and were probably stunned that a mantari accompanied him inside. Readout screens were set up around the tent, but had no power source. A wide ramp was collapsed into debris and the grass was scorched outside. What happened? Sard turned and the blue inner part of his mesh eyes dimmed. The ramp led into the passageway where my Awis was attempting to bring through my larger vessel. You will restore the opening now. Loftus wondered how the Bunchoff would reach into the passageway. He had little doubt that Sard would kill them all if the opening did not form. The Spunshoff will allow you unrestricted travel to the passageway. Tark's death will be avenged. Tark shooting Isaac Watkins and his men at Bathurst sent Loftus's head spinning. What do you offer? Loftus controlled his anger. You will bring your fleet through. You have a name of an inferior. Loftus. Why do you trust this inferior? asked the Creod next to Sard at the screen. His own words made no sense, but the translation came through Sard's wristband. Sard will defeat the Tabachar with whatever means necessary, Mia. Suppose it is a deception to kill us all, asked the smaller Creod. I assure you, this device is genuine, Varganemnus, said Loftus. He is an inferior. Are you so afraid of a Tabachar invasion that you put your fate in the hands of this Sard's fangs moved steadily down as he removed his Westic sword from its sheath. Sard will not have his authority diminished by a bargain. You are making a fatal decision, yelled Mia. Loftus stepped back. He watched his astonished friends as Sard lumbered across the tent. Before Mia could flee, Sard swung the sword swiftly through the air. Mia's midsection was hacked open, and an explosion of bright yellow blood splattered Sard and the grass. The Creot officer buckled at the wound and hit the ground hard. Sard stomped over and continuously stabbed the Creot. Loftus turned away when Sard diced the body into smaller pieces. A pungent iodine mist lingered in the tent. Salvage! Salvage! shouted Sard in the open air. Several Creots in metallic green uniforms rushed in. Remove the remains. It will be done, Bargadimnus. As they brought in the white shovels, Sard turned and his mesh eyes scanned toward Loftus. You will open the entrance now. If you are lying, your fate will be worse than my bargain. You and your salvage will be tortured without end. Zuni's face was unusually serene as they brought him outside. He held the bunshaft and he had only his trust in Tob and Shah to activate the device. They walked into the sunshine and across the singed grass to the rough brown ramp. The side supports sloped upward to the jagged edges in mid-air. Loftus imagined how this ramp had some way connected to the passageway. Sard placed the sword, still smeared with the yellow blood, back into his sheath as he started up the ramp. Loftus moved slowly, rising perhaps 150 feet above the encampment. Zuni, Zack, and John stood at the tent flap. Sard orders you to open the passageway, Loftus. Loftus gazed through the clear pyramid into the cloudless blue sky. An occasional breeze ruffled his hair. 
He peered over the thousands of Creod Selvits now out of their tents and staring at the ramp. I trust in Tabin Shah. Then you are a fool, said Sarid. The Bunshah's transparency clouded to a smoky pale green. Loftus felt the urge to speak, but he did not know what he was going to say. Raise your voices! Bring the song of victory across the millennia! Comes the secret of all existence! Sarid sees no opening. In the beginning, there was nothing. Nothingness abounded until the drum erupts into the substance and the dream. Existence is but a dream dreamed by the dreamer. Sard drew his westick and placed the blood-stained blade next to Loftus's neck. You will die, Imperial. From the Bunshoff, thin pencil beams sketched a bending arch hundreds of feet into the air. Sard withdrew the sword as the red-lined archway took full form and an inner haze blocked the rolling hills. The light sharpened and reflected upward upon Loftus, Sard, and the Bunshoff. The intergalactic passageway heightened green with hundreds of vessels back to the horizon slowly crystallized inside the prodigious opening. Many Creods inside ran forward but fell in respect when they saw Sard. You may bring your fleet through now, Vargadimnus, said Loftus as he lowered the Bunshoff. Sard reached his long arm outward. You will walk through first, Loftus. Loftus tucked the Bunshoff inside his pocket and stepped through toward the Creods inside. He heard Sard's voice from behind. Sard never forgets loyalty. You will sit at Sard's side when he conquers the Tabanshar. Sard followed Loftus into the dimmer light. Tabanshar's plan baffled Loftus, but the words spewed unknowingly from his mouth as he fell in homage. I would be honored, Varganemnus. Several Selvits appeared holding a white harness with armrests. They called it a Savros belt, and Sard strapped the harness around his body. He pushed several buttons on the armrester, rose into the air, and maneuvered around the opening. Loftus studied Sard's use of the belt, but still questioned how allowing the Creod fleet onto this planet could benefit Tabon Shah. Sard soared around the opening, and Loftus remembered their words about humiliation because of ambition. He again stared at the passageway he had twice crossed. It brimmed with Creod ships, and he now accepted things he could not fathom or see. Chapter 90. At first, John refused to believe Sard had procured Mantari food from settlements around the planet. They ate well, but as the days passed, Loftus learned numerous oddities. Creods were asexual beings who released hard-shell blue eggs over the course of their lives. The eggs were buried in the swamp and spawned some time later. They absorbed nutrition through the fingers, usually from tiny silver spheres. Of greater strategic importance was the Creod ability to continuously remain conscious. Now he was immersed uncomfortably within that culture. Zuni nudged him and pointed toward the expanding dark hull of a ship the size of a small mountain. Sard had mentioned the Aragosta was scheduled for passage on the planet that day. As the red tug ships, configured like arrows, dragged the vessel over inflated rollers the size of redwoods, the Aragosta cast a progressively deep and elongated shadow over the grass. Sard, strapped to his Sabros belt, moved alongside. Seems quite proud of his vessel, Captain. As well he should be, said Loftus. To command such a ship is a great honor. 
as his being Varget Emnes of the realm. If he weren't such a butcher, I might even like him, but I do respect him. And he gives you free reign because he respects you, said Zoom. I'm sure they're watching us from somewhere, said John, as they get ready for battle. And if the Saber's words ring true, it is the final battle, said Loftus. I hate them for what they did on Altashar and for what Tark did on Earth. Tark is better off dead, said John. Intelligent creature, said Loftus. They all are. Zack leaned closer and raised his bushy brows. It is Tobin Shah more intelligent. Late in the day, the Aragosta slowly crept through the opening. Sard summoned them all to the tent. Loftus fell to his knees when the hulking alien entered through the side flap. I am at your service, Vargan Emnes. You may rise. Sard wishes you and the other inferiors to accompany him to the Aragosta. Sard will prepare for departure. I am honored, Vargan Emnes. You have a magnificent ship. You will accompany Sard to the icy and Loftus. The inferiors will be in their assigned area. Loftus glanced at Zuni. It is willed, Loftus, despite what will happen to us. What do you mean? He asked as the Salvage nudged him along. He was taken from the tent behind Sard and into a lighted opening at the bottom of the Aragostas' hull. Salvage fell as Sard and his entourage passed. They moved into a clean, high tunnel, and Sard veered to a bright red light at the end. Loftus looked up at his host. What is that? The Thassia. It will bring us to the Icea. Or anywhere else on the Azekar. Loftus followed Sard and the two Salvets into the blaze of red light. Zuni, John, and Zack quickly entered the corridor. As the light shimmered, the corridor and his friends dissolved, and he sensed a motion through the haze. He smiled slowly because he knew he was traveling in some unknown way through the large Creon vessel. Sard pontificated about the size and power of his ship and expanded his boast to include the entire fleet. His continual references to eliminating Tabunshire and all inferiors pushed Loftus's tolerance. They emerged from the light a few minutes later, and Loftus trailed Sard onto the ship's bridge. Within the heavy, mustard odor, at least fifty creods worked a plethora of oversized consoles around the enlarged area. Loftus moved like a schoolchild entering the auditorium, he joined the others and in a combined thunderous thud fell to the floor when Sard stepped forward. One of the creatures near the forward screen overlooking the planes rushed up to Sard. His voice was translated in Sard's armed device. Margaret Emnes. Yes, Huda, what is it? New Frusian readings from across, very deep across the Humea. A vast amperage is assembling and advanced Azakars are heading this way. Sard questions it. I assure you, Vargadamnus, it is the truth. Loftus's stomach jolted, and he wondered if the Tab and Shah were finally mustering a fight. How many Asakars? Huta stared at him and completely ignored him. We are following their progress on the tactical Nankedums. Loftus, Sard wishes to know if they told you of their plan. Loftus glanced at Huta and then looked into Sard's black and yellow mesh receptors. I only know... The Sabre speaks of a final battle. Sard welcomes the final battle. He hurried toward one of the consoles. 
Loftus was chest even with the counter and he needed to look up to see the wide screen. A collection of tiny yellow dots swept outward from larger blurbs and perforated lines on the blue screen. Right, have you seen this? It would appear they are massing for a confrontation, Margaret Emnes, said Roik. Compare the amount of acid cars in this amperage to what was left after Golga, ordered Sard. Roik turned toward his console, pushed a button, and quickly looked back to Sard. Within 10%. Sard is ready. The heading, Margaret Emnes, said Hooter, is directly aligned with the circum. Muscles twitched around Sard's mouth and his sharp pink fangs dragged down his face. Let them dare to challenge Sard. We'll have trouble bringing all our imprints through before they arrive, said Roik. Sard will kill every Vargard on Azakar's not through the opening. He studied the tactical screen for a short time before glancing over his shoulder at Loftus. So the precious Saber prophecies are valid, Loftus. But the Sabre tenets do not speak of a victor. The outcome of the battle is in doubt. I do not see how a race that is hidden from you, Vargademnus, can be a worthy opponent. The Tauberd Shah took the homework of when Sard was not prepared. The result was death and destruction. He stared at the screen and Loftus wondered if his obsession was related to guilt, something not freely evidenced by the Creods. There would be no need for Golga had Sard not underestimated them. You claim to have all the answers, Loftus. I went to Abishar and I retrieved the Bunshaf. Yet you betray your own people. Loftus feared again that Sard might kill him. My people are cowards, and those around me were killed because they did not properly defend. All men, Terry, are inferiors. Have you brought Sard here to be tricked? I want to live with the victors. Despite your loyalty, Sard will watch you. If you have deceived him, you and your inferior servants will be hacked to death. Chapter 91 During the removal of the Creod fleet from the passageway, Loftus spent most of his time with John Zuni and Zack. The Aragosta was lifted into a high orbit around the blue cloud-scattered planet. They were told to wander the ship freely, but they were always followed by a contingent of huge armed salvets and tracked by wall scanners. Zack rushed down the corridor as Zuni and Loftus returned from studying the Tabanshah fleet progress on the Icean Nakedams. Captain, a group of those goons just took John. What? For what reason? I don't trust Sard, said Loftus, looking into the salvets' mesh receptors, scanning them from the end of the hall. Loftus, said Zuni, holding his wrist, you cannot stop what is to be fated. Then you feel something. Her blue eyes moisten. Accept. I have trouble accepting. He pushed the button on his fram. Bargain Emnes. They just took him out. He didn't even provoke them, said Zack. The channel hissed and no one answered. We're all heading back up there. The Selvitz pointed their gold tubular weapons as Loftus stormed down the corridor. You will remain in your orsel, inside your orsel, until the Bargadimnus calls you. Where is John? The Salvat's arm speaker vibrated with a translated statement. The Bargadimnus has ordered you all in your orsel, where you will be witness to the destruction of all man life. Soon he closed her eyes. It has begun. 
The Salvage pointed the shooter and locked a step between Zuni and the shooter. Where is John? Into the also inferior. You have been ordered to live, but they both can die. Tears trickled from Zuni's closed eyes and down her cheeks. Loftus stepped back inside the ossel with Zack. The opening formed and closed. Inside the large wall screen displayed an image of the busy Isian. On the forward Nakedum, the brown outline of the Ascrans was vivid against the blue ocean waters. He did not see Sard, but several Salvets were seated along a console Loftus knew contained the shooter alignment controls and the power diverters. Sard! said Loftus, banging on the communication key. Sard! The Barger Nemesis is directing the operation from the shooter reserve, said Roik. He maneuvered his large silver-suited body across the ice and looked directly at Loftus. The one you call John is with him. I want to know why John is with him, said Loftus. Only the Barger Nemesis can answer that question. Then I need to speak with him. Loftus approached the screen and Roik walked away. Is he dead? Roik did not respond. They must have shut off the audio up there, Captain, said Zack. He touches John, and I'll kill him regardless of what Tobinshaw wants. Sarbrun Delessier Melubum, she said. I don't understand the words. The high-pitched shooter fire vibrated through the walls, and on the Nakedum, green beams shot from the ship's belly. Loftus spun around, following the diminishing line to patches of white light erupting on the surface. He gritted his teeth. Not the first time for this butcher. I don't understand. Zuni placed her fingers on her temples. Brutal, Captain. My son. Why my son? asked Loftus. And your father and brothers are in the Nezcrans, he said. Zuni remained in sustained resignation. The shooter fire sounded again. More cities were vaporized across the Azcrans. The mead was slated next, but they continued firing along the coast. Loftus pounded his fist into the wall. He braced himself for the next round and stared at the city on the coast near the plains. From this lofty perspective, the Camino Trail across the barren land to the morgue was clearer. The shooters sounded again and the area along the shore became a part of the white cloud rising upward. Deluca was dead now, along with everyone else, maybe even the Tolton. Sard. The Aragosta's orbit now brought it out over the ocean. Zack turned to Loftus. Captain, I don't think he'd do anything to John till Tobinshar is defeated. We'll all be safe. He's afraid you possess certain powers. Loftus stared at the other side of the room. The only power I had was the Boonshoff. Look! Loftus spun around as Sard crossed the Icean and headed toward the communications port. Your son is contained and safe. Why? Sard trusts no one. The planet's destruction is Sard will move the air bridge toward the Tabanshar fleet. Your argument is not with the people left on the planet, Sard. This Urkham is irrelevant. All surface life will be cleared. It will eventually be colonized and its atmosphere changed. Your fight is with the Tabanshar. Silence! Battle casualties are a part of war. Sard grows annoyed with these challenges. He will prepare to leave this Urkham after the inferior removal and face the Tabanshar amperage. We have ten times their Azakars. He glanced at Zuni, still in deep resignation. Fraganemnus, Zuni's family is in the Nezcrans. Listen to him, Roy. Perhaps he can be used to make arguments to the Echelon Assembly. 
but lost and swear to your loyalties lie. I would not be alive if my loyalties were not in the right place. Sard agrees. He turned to his salvets at the shooters. The Nezcran's green coast, hemmed in by mountains and the high desert above, slowly came into view. Target Eparch. Sard, I gave you the Bunshaf. Now give me the city. Open the shooters. Loftus half turned from the screen when more shooter beams hummed and struck the coastal city. Four separate clouds mushroomed near the mountains. Sard personally fired on the remaining cities and ordered a containment field around the planet. The resulting sub-atmospheric bombardment would kill all surface life. He wondered if Cabius and the herbals would survive deep inside the morgue. Soon he did not flinch. Zack stared at the screen as he spoke. He wanted the pleasure of the kill. Loftus nodded as a creeping magenta haze spread concentrically around the globe. Sard gazed back at the Nakedum. Now you will be brought below. Roy has traced the Pinkro readings diverted from the Urkel, orbiting this system like a beacon. Urkel? asked Loftus as an elongated piece of meteor, impacted brown mountainous rock, floated through the starry background. An asteroid, Captain. You will be sent to observe the approaching Tabanshar amperage within the more extensive Frucian readings. See if they fire on the Surrey of Khan. I never said I was the Surrey of Khan. Sard thinks you are the Surrey of Khan. I want to know about my son. He contrasted Zuni's placid, almost peaceful countenance with his own expression, rigid like an angered fighter at the beginning of a critical round. I'll do what I have to do. Zooming through space in the small Pizikar, Loftus still worried about John, but now had the additional concern for Zuni and Zack, still back in Sard's custody on the Aragosta. He studied Roik's use of the two piloting sticks and located the speed and distance readouts on the tacticals. Reich's black mesh receptors scanned blue toward Loftus. They all hit after Golgar. All these reefs. Our Azakars will destroy the circle once their presence is confirmed farther out in the Frucian. Why not just destroy the Urkel now? A commendable attitude for an inferior, but not practical. We could unleash deadly power by aiming the shooters directly into that Pequot. Loftus nodded, but never forgot how this race had destroyed Zuni's planet. On the tactical, the Pizikar's course lines were projected from the Aragosta toward the distant fleet. From the tiny Urkel out in the solar system, the time and space displacement rolled outward past Sard's vessels. Roik moved the sticks to the right and veered obliquely to the fleet ships. Loftus was convinced he could fly the ship. Why can't Sard just get this data from the Aragostas scanning? Even as an inferior, you must see the Frucian. Nothing received on the Aragostas Nakedum would be accurate. And we are here to draw them out, Loftus. We have been honored by Sard to fight the first engagement of this battle. I will face what I have to face. Commendable for an inferior. Why do you call us inferiors? Roy continued to grip the sticks and did not have a ready answer. Your race does not possess superior abilities. Like what? he asked. You do not have my physical attributes or my reasoning abilities. You require time to refurbish your system. You must mate to perpetuate your race. 
You are the product of a long war and you hate the Tarban Shah. So how dare you call me inferior? Because you are. And the realm did not stop the war. Several yellow warning lights flashed and his mesh receptors scanned the screen on his left. Five green blips raced across the top of the screen. They protect their precious amperage. What do you see? Advanced Pizikars designed to repel intruders. Interesting. These are Pizikars of the realm. Loftus checked the tactical. All the realm ships came through the passageway, and this is the opposite direction from our present position. None of our Azikars could be out here. Roy scanned intensely at the numerous equations and figures flying over the screens. A grand deception. They are truly inferior. Perhaps they think we will not fire on our own Azikars. Let them come. Better to die in glory to Sard. Speak for yourself, whispered Loftus. Don't you think the Vargan Emnus would be better served if we lived and brought this information back to him? Yes, you are correct. Loftus raised his brows and nodded as he memorized Roik's movements. He pushed several buttons near the left screen and took control of the grips again. The Pizikar began a wide loop back toward the Aragostas position. Roik pointed at the center screen. I see the other Azikar. It's identical to our Amperage Azikars. Why? Why do they deceive us so? Loftus was more fearful of the accelerating Pizikars. It's still a distance to the Aragosta. We may have to fight them. We need to shed weight on this Pissacar. Oh, should I jump out? If you wish. That would be a glorious sacrifice to the Vargan Emnus. I have no intention of leaving the ship. The green dots closed in. On the other hand, it may not matter much. I have always been prepared to die for the Vargan Emnus, said Roik. Perhaps it is for the greater glory of the realm that you should be jettisoned from the Pizikar. You are an inferior, Loftus. It does not matter. Matters to me. He again studied the displacement waves spreading out from the Urkel. Wait, those waves are strongest by the Urkel. We should bring this ship toward the Urkel in the outer edges of that solar system. What purpose? asked Roik. Once they are lured into the system, the Aragosta or any other vessel can send Azakars out to destroy the ships. Interesting, Lothus. You are almost capable of thinking like a Creod. I'm about to be killed and my IQ goes up by about 100%. You're what? Forget it. Can you bring this Pizikar to the Oracle? It will be done and the bargain Emnus will be alert. Loftus easily anticipated Reich's maneuvers with the sticks and the broader navigational controls. He was even aware of the shooter panel bumps to the left and the communications area in the center. The incoming Pizikars were now uncomfortably close as Reich's Pizikar neared the edge of the solar system. What bothered Reich was the increased disruption coming from the Urkel, shown in blue blotches on the screen. The ride through space was choppy as Loftus spotted the elongated brown Urkel. Roik pulled back on the sticks and magnified the Nakedim picture. Prodigious spike peaks pointed to the stars. Loftus had no doubt this Urkel was really Abishar, but he was at a loss to explain how some ancient Saber chant had physically transported him twice across the solar system. As Roik decelerated and the Pizikar trekked over the darkened mountains, Loftus checked the Pizikars on the tactical. They're still after us. We will hide within the Frucian and surprise them with full shooter power. Before Loftus could respond, he noticed a glow over the immediate peaks. 
Pizikar emerged over the white slab and the brilliant color display from the towering Bunshoff into the green reflected pool. Broik's receptors bright and blue between the black mesh. The source of the Prussian. Yes, the source. Loftus now realized the circle containing his Bunshoff and the Kruxel was critical for the time and space displacement. Roik swung the Pizikar behind the peaks beyond the Bunshoff. He slowed the vessel and finally hovered along the cold rock edges. Every section of the shooter pin was lit bright blue, and the shooter reserves hummed below the Pizikar. Now we wait for battle? Let them die in their deception. One of the communications panel lights flashed, and Roy quickly pushed the button with his long, narrow finger. The incoming transmission was scratchy. This is what you have done. You are inferior to think you can denigrate the Creon realm with your duplicated vessels. Roy stared at the speaker. And now we detect a complete amperage in the system with ships constructed to appear like Creon ships. You will identify yourself in your registry, shouted Reich. Ah, the lonely Pizikar in hiding. You are already dead, Inferior. This is Proaska Mir, and I am the instrument of your death. Bargat Mir is dead, killed by Sard. I am alive, and I swear my life to the Bargat Garment. Lies! There is no Bargat Garment. Your deception has been uncovered. The three ships, gray in the pool light, arched over the mountains. Roik immediately unleashed the shooters. Two ships were hit and smoke spewed from hull punctures as they spun out of control overhead, leaving a debris trail in their wake. But the third ship sent a straight green energy beam at the Pizikar and flipped it back. Roik was thrown against the Pizikar wall. Front panels smoldered and Roik slumped forward as he slowly pitched back. Loftus shook the Creod's tight cold shoulder. Roik! Roik! Foul yellow blood dripped onto his hand. He wiped his fingers on the seat. On the screen, the last incoming Pizikar circled back over the peaks. Loftus placed his hands around the thick padded seats and, and tightened his grasp. For a moment, he debated playing dead, but he quickly abandoned the idea when the incoming ship completely swung over the Bunshaft. He moved the sticks by intuition, stabilizing the craft. With no idea of the consequence of his action, he banged the shooter panel bumps. The low, whining energy he had once despised and feared as a child now flew across cold space. He was stunned when the attacking ship was blasted into a huge fireball. The debris soon darkened and passed high over the Pizikar. A gradual smile came to his face. Roik must have left the internal portals to target the shooter beams. He leaned back and glanced at the slouched alien, his eye receptors dark and a yellow, gooey wound on his head. Roik! Roik! Blue streaks within the black mesh brightened and faded. The Creod's fingers twitched as the mesh heightened. His large head rotated and the voice on his translator was weak. Loftus. The pursuers are dead, the Pizikar is destroyed. How? He asked, bringing his fingers slowly up to his head wound. I fired the shooters. You? asked Roik. Yes. You will be honored by the realm for this action. No longer will I see you as an inferior. I will recommend the bargain Emnus allow you full salvage status. Loftus gazed into the starry sky over the silhouetted peaks. My actions were only for survival. A true inferior would have done nothing. As he gazed across the stars, Loftus again questioned Tabin Shah's deception strategy. What would Sard do to the Tabanshar chameleon fleet if Loftus, knowing so little about the Pizikar's controls, could take out an incoming ship? 
He leaned back and placed his fingers to his temples and resonated for guidance. Back inside the Aragostas portal bays, as Loftus exited behind the medical salvets whisking Roik to the Thassian, an assemblage of silver-suited salvets dropped in homage. The Vargats and Sard remained standing. Loftus stopped on the ramp. Sard moved toward him like a green grizzly bear. The blue glow was bright behind his receptor mesh. Sard is pleased with your actions, Loftus. Sard rewards loyalty. Sard now grants you the full title of Proaska. I am honored, Vargard Emnus, he said, kneeling before Sard. You may rise. As he stood, Loftus quickly panned the base for John, as well as Zuni and Zack. Creods remained on their knees above and back to the corridors, but Loftus did not see his friends. Sard now fully understands the Tabon Shah deception. He has directed the entire amperage against the duplicated Azakars. No one deceives Sard. Glory to the realm, said Loftus, still searching for the others. Glory to the realm, and the realm shall have glory. This is the end of Tabon Shah. You will be victorious, Bargain Emnus. Where are my friends? Sard slowly turned. You are sentimental, Loftus. Perhaps you will see them again, perhaps not. Loftus moved closer and looked up at the mammoth creature. What have you done with my friends? The inferiors have been brought to the planet. This planet is now lifeless. Sard will not have true inferiors aboard the Aragosta during the battle. Do not question Sard Loftus. Without your loyalty, they and you would be dead. Chapter 92 Loftus counted three sleep cycles after the Aragosta left the solar system. He despaired about his friends as he stood above the Isian, and Sard conferred with Elkin and the other Vargas at the forward tactical screens. Creod shooters had just hit another Tabon Shah Pizikar. Loftus shook his head at the stupidity of the deception strategy as Sard looked up. How many Pizikars must they lose before inflicting a single Creod casualty, Loftus? Their plan is flawed, he replied. Have they contacted you? Do they dare contact Sard? Even their amperage disbursement mirrors a Creod attack force. I have scanned an Azakar similar to the Aragosta. Do they think Sard will not fire upon them and be exposed to their shooter reserves? Sard had placed a wide Azakar disbursement and cluster ships ahead of his amperage. The smaller Armada was headed, according to the screens, toward the exposed right flank. Loftus crossed his arms. Why are those Azakars unprotected? It is a ploy, Loftus. Our main group has targeted the Azakars and will travel from relative safety within the Amperage. They think they can cripple our larger vessel. And are you sure they will come out? He seemed to overlook Loftus's ignorance. Sard is ready. They only have a third of Sard's Azakars. Sard faced the tactical again. His first Azakars had fired upon several Tabanshar flank ships. The opposing ships sent only a few volleys out before they were blown apart. Sard nodded as Alkin pointed at several small Nakitam screens below. Uta, how many Tabanshar Azakars 
16, Bargademnus. Loftus thought back to the chain of events traceable to San Francisco and even Long Beach. The trail of death stretched across time and had not yet ended. These Tabanshah ships seemed no match for Sard, and he now envisioned the whole fleet being decimated in a short time. But Sard throwing John, Zack, and Zuni back to the planet gnawed at his soul. He went down the side ramp and directly to the tactical screens. In a surge of emotion, he placed his hand on Sard's arm. Sard jumped and his fangs sprang out as he turned. Loftus leaped back. No one touches Sard. Loftus stared into his mesh grids. He knew at that moment how much he hated Sard and every member of his race. How do I know my friends are not dead? Sard does not listen to inferior demands. And so you destroy Tob and Charm. What have you gained? Silence! Elkin quickly moved closer. Sard, they're using the flying ellipse. Zeloth is the classic Creon formation. Pointed at the bullet-shaped line of ships now accelerating from the center of the opposing Tabanshah fleet. No one in the Humea uses such a pattern. Sard is amused by the deception. Sard predicted the ellipse was met by a superior Creod force. Ships were easily plugged off, forming a bright trail like fireworks spent in the night, and the fleet center was fully exposed. Sard pounded the table. Coward! Cowards, where are the words of the Saber now? Bargadamnus, not now, Huda. Take delight in our victories. They are truly inferior. Do you not agree, Loftus? Loftus pressed his lips as more ships were blown apart on the flank. Before he could speak, Huda left his post and leaped down to Sard. Bargadamnus, we have a problem. Huda, we are losing salvage, Bargadamnus. Impossible. Sard has won every encounter. Salvage from several Azakars are no longer listed here, nor on the other Azakars. Then have them check their records for a fully, Huda. Huda spoke again as he turned toward Elkin. Perhaps this is the weapon of Taban Shah. Battle weariness, said Sard. Deserters who encounter their first taste of battle, send out the word, Huda. Any deserters or salvage reporting such disappearances will be killed. It will be done, Bargadimnus, said Huda, heading back to his post. Maybe you are afraid of the obvious, Sard. Tabanshar is more powerful than you thought. Is that why their Azakars fall apart so easily to Sard's attacks? Do not apologize for their weakness, Loftus. Bargadimnus! The bizarre reports are worse. Our vessels have minor structural changes. Elkin, have the Aragosta checked. Bring all vessels into the egress. What does that mean? asked Loftus. The Aragosta lurched and Loftus grabbed the side rail. Sard never answered, but the entire amperage converged and formed a spike on the screen. Loftus had trouble convincing himself he was indeed in the midst of a major battle somewhere in deep space. Speed increasing, said Huda. Sard banged the console screen. How dare they bomb the ellipse? The Tabanshah vessels now formed a replica of the amperage alignment. Subdivide and execute. Destroy them! A newer compacted alignment quickly mobilized the four advancing Creard units led by four Pizikars. Sard pushed a button and the images directly from the forward Pizikars were cordoned on the Nekidim corner. 
violent burst of green energy bolts shot forth from alternate parts of the central Tabanshah Egress. The Pisikar images broke up and faded. 25 Azakars have been hit, shouted Huda. How dare they fight this way against Sard? He ordered a new formation, but the opposing ships matched his moves. In the forward battle line, individual dogfights were now determining the strategic advantage of both sides. Reich! Give me Reich! Reich? asked Huda. Loftus studied his baffled expression in the dimming receptors, but as he turned, he saw Sard standing in a blue metallic uniform with glowing silver-striped edges. Every Selvit and Vargan on the Icean now wore a new uniform. The uniforms changed again when Huda reported more casualties, and everyone on the Icean shifted to a slightly different position. Nakitos were molded in a new way, and control screens seemed realigned. Is this the games they play? yelled Sard, pinching the new uniform's fabric. Sard will not tolerate this! Kill them all! Kill them all! Where is Bargain Roik? I can contact Bargain Dobber. Roik has recovered! I want Roik! He screamed as the Aragorn shaking the ice. Get me Roik! There is no Roik, said Huda. Sard scanned the ice. Where is Elkin? I do not see Elkin. I do not know what you are talking about, Bargadimnus. We have injuries on the lower decks. Elkin! The Pizikar images shut off the battle. Sard ran from station to station. So they alter everything. What powers do they possess? Retreat, Bargainemnus. Both sides are losing too many Azakars. Never! Sard will never retreat from the Tabat Shah. Direct all shooter reserves at the center of their amperage. Loftus watched the tacticals. Ships were altered in new Kriots he had never seen, materialized on the icy and every time a major skirmish took place. He wandered down front as a young Vargan approached Sard. Sard removed his shooter from his belt. Who are you? Bargadimnus, I am Laura. Sard does not know you. I have been with you since Gogger, Bargadimnus. He said as another burst of energy jolted the Aristoga. I employ you to retreat. You are a Tabachar deception. Sard fired the shooter. Laura's body glowed green and then he disappeared. No one challenges Sard. The entire configuration of both fleets shifted again. Tabon Shah now formed a wide arc and the realm was minus a third of its vessels. Sard stumbled to the shooter reserves, still determined to fight. Huda quickly followed him. Bargadimnus, we have lost another 60 Azakars. The shielding Pizakars, our only protection, are diminished, please. The Arnak is gone, Bargadimnus, said one of the Selvids at the tactical. Tameric is on the Fram. Put him on. Bargadimnus. He said in his static, strained voice, I'm surrendering the Seabuck. No, Sardon is here to fight to the death. Advancing fire, Bargadimnus. The channel was cut and Loftus saw the explosion of the fleet ship on the screen. Side gripped the railing and lowered his head. His fangs slowly retracted. He must have realized the possibility of defeat at the hands of Tabon Shah. Bargadimnus, said Huda. A frequency contact opened with your voice. He is claiming he is the bargain garment and he wants you to surrender the Azakar. More deception by Tom and Shar. Sard would rather die than surrender to their tricks. Loftus back toward the rear as Sard argued with Huda, smacked the consoles, and then screeched at the forward screens. 
Absorbed in the red light, Loftus sneaked away from the Icean. Although unsure how to operate the Pizikar, he headed for the portal bays. In the Thassian light, Loftus sorted through the sound of the duplicate voice of Sarin, and he marveled at the sophistication of Taban Shah to alter perceptions. More quick jolts shook the red light, and the Thassian opened to the lower corridor. The putrid iodine smell he remembered from Altashar packed the corridor as he ran over the bodies. He sprinted and fell several times as the ship shook violently. As he entered the portal bays, damaged Pizikars were scattered across the gritty surface, and the last group of fifteen black tube vessels were still lined along the far wall. He was convinced he could fly the Pizikar again if he could only cross the bays. He ripped a shooter from a fallen Priod and trekked along the back wall. Selvitt's preoccupation with the battle allowed him to cross under the catwalk and toward the last Pizikars. His only hope was to get the ship into space and somehow either return to Abishar or the passageway. Several Creods remained at the control panels under the catwalk. He thought about using the shooter, but even if he took them all out, the attention would get him killed. Tightening his hand around the shooter, he crawled on his stomach across the abrasive gray floor. The Creods remained busy at the panels as he reached the first long black Pizikar. He slithered up the Pizikar's open ramp and into the large chair. His first action was to push the button, retracting the ramp, and the Pizikar was quickly sealed. Once he activated the yes he pushed the portal activation and then jabbed the main engine switch. The Pizikar rolled forward with a connecting beam he remembered would bring the ship into the locks. Salvats were calling him on the open channels, but he could not answer. He doubted in the heat of battle as he waited behind another Pizikar, they would think he was inside. The locks opened as they had for Roik and the ship was dragged into place. But as the door shut, Sard, a rifle shooter braced in his long arms, emerged from the Bay Thassian. Loftus could hear him ranting until the portal doors fully closed. He gazed at the outside locks, gripped the oversized maneuvering sticks and wondered as the pressure was pushed out if he could take this craft away before Sard knew he was inside. More Creods called him through the speakers, but he could not respond to what he could not understand. The ship lurched and the outer locks separated to the starry sky. The Pizikar moved away from the Aragosta. He marveled at the size of the massive vessel, but several energy bulbs bombarded the forward section. On the tactical, he saw the swarm of Creod and Taban Shah ships. Within the bright shooter beams, the continuing time and space displacement waves were moved into deep space. The Pizikar's internal systems were demanding a course heading. From memory, he aligned the red and blue lines to the source of the displacement, the Bunshaf at Abashar. He pushed the course alignment button and released the grips. Pizikar tilted upward like the loop on a roller coaster amusement park ride and passed upside down over the Aragosta. He moved near two lifeless Creod vessels floating through space. What concerned him were the readouts showing a nearly identical Aragosta not too far away. The Pizikar picked up speed and fired its engines. Loftus was pushed back into the seat and both the Aragosta vessels shrunk from view. He closed his eyes lifted his fingertips to Taban Shah and resonated for an understanding of the fleet duplication. What bothered Loftus was Sard's version of the truth and whether any of his friends were really on the planet. Sard may have left them behind, but he had closed the passageway opening. 
Loftus lay back within the yestic and closed his eyes. He had done what Taban Shah requested and lured Sard into some bizarre battle. Yet, what had become of the lost ones? Chapter 93 Loftus popped his eyes in the dark cabin, lighted only by orange and yellow gauges, the screens and the forward window span of stars. Sard's voice cracked over the speakers again. Loftus, you are an inferior. It is you who are responsible for the destruction of the Aragosta. You have caused Sard to fall from Bargarnemna. Sard will kill you. Loftus studied the green dots moving across the screen well away from the battle and the spreading debris. You will not escape Sard. He will find you and torture you without end. Loftus attempted to cut off the speaker. He hit the console as Sard continued the harangue. Through the forward window span, the stars forming the inverted dipper were tilted to the side. According to the tactical, he was nearing Abishah. Although he had no copy of the Saba, he recited verses as Sard's vessel slowly gained on him. He had no way to calculate whether Sard could overtake him before he reached the Bunshaf. Your ship will be vaporized at Abishar, Sard. He did not think Sard would be taken in by the threat. Sard's ship is closing in. Loftus did not have the skills to increase speed. You will never see the Urkel again. This is your final battle. A sharp jolt racked his stomach. You call yourself a Creod Varget? Silence! I said you are not worthy to be called a Varget of the realm. You useless piece of alien flesh. You have lost to a replica of your own amperage. With his own words, he finally understood. The readings were identical to Galga. He spoke in a slower and quieter voice. You lost to your own fleet. You will die. Can't you see, Sard? You fought your own battle group from Galga through time. The channel remained silent. Can't you hear me? Or have you left like the coward you are? You and your Tabanshar inferiors. Sard will destroy you and the Urkel. Let them help you now, Loftus. Loftus looked at the tactical. He used his finger and thumb to measure the distance to Abishar. Through the front span, the yellow Mantari sun was clearly larger than the surrounding star field, but he had not yet spotted the asteroid. He gripped the sticks as the circumference of the sun increased, but he did not know whether the Pizikar would, would slow exactly over the Bunshaf. As he turned, the tactical erupted with a thick green line emanating from Sard's ship. The beam dissipated through his rear window span. He located the shooters and locked on Sard's Pizikar. The beam shot back and caused Sard to maneuver upward, but he again cursed Loftus through the speakers. Loftus jostled the sticks as Sard's Pizikar visually appeared in the window span. More energy bursts were directed at Loftus's ship. The ship decelerated internally. Loftus exhaled in relief. 
and caught sight of the pockmarked Abishar asteroid against the stars. Sarge shooter beams passed overhead. At a lower altitude, the Pizikar crept over the mountain peaks. The glow from the Bunshaf was evident near the top as he cascaded over the colored lines fixed between the pool and the Bunshaf. The ship crawled to the towering monolith and stopped. He knew Sard's Pizikar would soon appear over the peaks. In frustration, he pushed the sticks and nudged away from the Bunshaf, but consistently moving the ship required constant pressure. He quickly aligned the shooters toward the peaks and circled the Pizikar over the green pool. When Sard's long black ship moved rapidly over the mountain points, Loftus aligned the colors on the tactical and hit the shooter beams. The energy nicked Sars Pizikar wing, whether by the Pizikar's internal processors or because of a quick reaction by Sard, the sleek ship veered off and out of sight over the shadowy brown jagged mountains. Loftus shifted the sticks and trailed the Creod. Without seeing Sard's Pizikar, he could not determine the damage. As he zoomed over the dimly lit peaks, Sard's voice vibrated on the forward consoles. Instinctively, he looped the Pizikar back toward the pool. Sard's Pizikar raced over the opposite peak. Loftus fired the shooter bank and produced a direct impact along Sard's Pizikar. The ship toppled into a tailspin and toured the pool. It crashed and slid like a top on the slab. Chunks of the craft tore loose in an expanding gray cloud. Loftus brought his Pizikar back to a safe position above the peaks behind the Bunshaft. He hovered in the darkness and stared at the lifeless ship for the longest time. Finally, he inched the Pizikar back toward the linear colored light. With no sign of Sard or movement on the tacticals, he set the ship down vertically on the slab. He released the Yestik and eyed the Sabros belt secured below the consoles. Sard's donning the belt at the passageway opening flashed into his mind. He hoisted up the belt and tightened the harness around his waist. Again, the orange tactical showed no activity around Sard's Pizikar, yet Loftus still clasped his hand over a shooter on the Savras belt's right armrest. He pushed the switch, opening the hatch, and fresh air moved inside the Pizikar. As he walked down the ramp, he was still baffled how the air was held around this tiny asteroid. He started along the pool, toward the Bunshaf, and stared at Sard's Pizikar's twisted remains. Getting back inside the Bunshaf would allow him to speak directly to Taban Shah. As he passed between the brilliant blaze of light and Sard's Pizikar, a whining energy bolt shot across the pool and his own Pizikar exploded, shaking the ground. The debris rose upward and swept back like a fierce gale across the slab. He dove on his belly as Sard, also wearing a Savros belt, lifted above his Pizikar. The Creod's face was blackened on one side, and he had lost an arm. Loftus feared another attack as Sard circled the Bunshaf. He punched the side controls, remembering Sard had activated the buttons in sequence. With a jolt, he shot upward and for a few seconds lifted over the mountains, but he adjusted quickly. He moved the side rest and brought himself high above the far end of the pool. You live? How do you live? Asked Sard over the armed speaker. Loftus stabilized the belt as Sard slowly moved away from the Bunshaft. Without tacticals, Loftus fired from sight, but Sard, flying a bizarre pattern over the pool, 
easily dodge the attack. Before Asar dies, he will see you die, Loftus, just like your son. Liar! Loftus shot forward along the pool as Sard fired. The green light poked all around him as he dipped down. His lack of control was probably averting Sard's ability to target. He looped upward less than ten feet above the slab. Sard closed in as Loftus swung back. He thought of John's young face in the Appleton woods, and he fired. Like a fighter taking a quick jab, Sard was bashed from behind and flipped over the slab near the Bunshoff. He tumbled and actually hit the Bunshoff, but to Loftus' shock, he regained control and started back up. In an accelerated zigzag pattern, Sard avoided Loftus' shooters. He slammed into Loftus and locked his arm around Loftus' chest. Now high above the pool, he clawed at Loftus' belt attachments. Loftus moved his head and neck as Sard tried to tear into his flesh with his long pink fangs. Sard lifted his fangs again and ripped into Loftus' arm. Loftus cried out as the belt loosened above the colored light connected to the pool far below. When Sard came at him again, he bashed the Creod's mesh receptors, but somehow the mesh provided a rigid protection, and Sard again wrapped his mighty arm around Loftus' waist. His upper lip vibrated when he squeezed the air from Loftus' lungs. Loftus faced Sard's wide blue and black mesh receptors and extended fangs. With his foot, he made a last effort and kicked Sard's Sabros clasp. The belt clicked, but the Creod seemed unaware of the impending calamity. You are dead, Inferior. Killed by Sard. Loftus let his body go limp. As Sard's receptors focused on Loftus's tilted head, Loftus clenched his fist and bashed at the raw green and yellow flesh exposed at the open arm socket. Sard wailed and released his grip. Loftus thumped the clasp again, unlocking it, and Sard spiraled downward. He scrambled and grasped for the belt in midair, but his bewildered expression deepened as he careened toward the pool. His huge frame crossed the pool's edge and he sunk down within the reflective green edges. The once most powerful being in the galaxy, undisputed leader of billions of creods, pierced the mirrored energy, producing a quick, dissipating splash as he disappeared into the void. Still stunned, Loftus, his arm pulsing from the fang bite, hovered over the pool. He slowly floated down to the slab. The pool had resumed its flawless form. He unlocked the belt, set it on the slab, and wrapped his wounded arm with a ripped piece of shirt fabric. Along the pool, the colored beams scattered and the surface split again into a descending ramp. He tightened his brow and stared across the steely blue sky and rounded stone domes where he had gone before. Still holding his forearm, he descended the ramp. He was shoulder level with the pool, but the pain left his arm, and a few cuts along his head no longer stung. His forearm skin was smooth when he removed the cloth. With a new sense of peace, he walked onto the granite dome once again. Across the next dome, John waved near the trees and his voice echoed across the valley. Can you hear me? How did you get here, John? Are you all right? He 
cupped his hands. It's beautiful, all so beautiful. I don't understand, have you talked to them? What do they want from me? They want you to keep trusting in what you cannot see. Don't you understand, Tom, after all this time? Are they God? Another voice echoed on the dome to his right. Vernon Crawford sat on a ledge high above Loftus. Vernon! Oh dear God! Vernon! Kabun Shah is a part of the higher reality as we all are during our lives and after. It's all one! How? How did they become part of this higher reality, Vernon? You were killed by Garvey. Their advancement brought them to other dimensions, but they couldn't return. They could only affect by resonating. So I can't get out. No, Tommy. My image is projected as is John's after his own death in your future. You'll be okay. Vernon walked closer, but Loftus could not touch him. His smile was more captivating than the huge dome and landscape. I can be everywhere, all at once. We all can. And when we're all one with each other, everything balances with the upper realities. The Tav and Shah, they escaped after the Battle of Galga. Yes, they advanced so far to control time and time passageways. From Earth, there were caves all over the planet leading to the passageway. And humans crossed over millions of years ago in our timeline. All humans onto other planets and civilizations grew. The Tabun Shah constructed other passageways for all the other evolved beings before the Creon Wars, which they appear to have started. No, no, the Creons, with their interventions, saw the dark side of themselves the actions of the Tavonshar. You and the Tolton were the ones who had to stop them with the Bonshars, but the Tolton would not allow himself to see the possibilities. And the Tavonshar could not return. They needed you to trust. When both the Kruxil and the Bonshar merged, time was displaced. Sard fought against himself, constantly changing time. And the final battle with the interventions had yet to be determined. You won, Tommy. My question about God, Vernon. God is the higher realities, Tommy. We can't understand that when we're in three dimensions. We can only see the results and the connection within ourselves. Then, what is the meaning of life? They're taking care of that. All of everything, the upper realities, the matter and energy. But it means nothing unless you acknowledge the possibility of it all. We just can't see it while we're alive. Everyone chooses their own path. What is the meaning of life? Asked Loftus, extending his arms. Loftus heard Zuni's voice, but he did not see her. 
The meaning of life is the same whether or not you believe in the higher realities. The meaning of life is choice. Everyone has burdens, but it is how we make our choices within those burdens. This is the meaning of existence. You chose to accept the seva and follow what Tabanshah told you. You will find peace. Zuni, where are you, Zuni? When he turned, John stood before him. You will find peace now, said John, smiling. John, tell me what's going on here. They have taken care of that. Sarbun, Delicia, Melubum, please come back. John moved farther away and his image faded into the bold stone landscape. Loftus looked back across the rock and scanned the other domes. The steamy white fog from the river and rocks below rose upward. His heart raced as he gazed at the spot where Vernon Crawford had spoke to him only minutes before. The fog spun upward, obscuring the glow beneath the gray clouds. The valley walls and evergreens appeared in bits and pieces through the thickening haze. Where am I supposed to go? The fog compacted so heavily, Loftus could not see the grain in the rock. Back toward the upper ridges, a yellow glow pulsed through a drifting moisture. He realized as he shuffled, he was no longer on a solid surface. Yet he meandered toward the fuzzy, pale glow. It was as if he were a jet speeding through a lower cloud bank as blue splotches flashed in the haze. The air temperature and humidity had changed as he squinted in the emerging sun. Warming winds rushed in and effectively pushed the fog away. He found himself shoulder deep within a green cornfield. The cloudless sky and mountains reminded him of Appleton. As he visually trekked down range, the distant tomahawk markings of Southeast Mountain came into focus. The Nonotoc River gracefully looped across the Sleepy Valley's fertile plains. Smaller hills were piled along the eastern slopes. He ran down the dirt between the stalks and into a high grass field. This was Appleton, Vermont, but the landscape was not packed with development. He counted five farmhouses and wide stretches of fields within his immediate view. Other than a few buildings back in town and the others near the college, the land was remarkably bucolic. A wagon pulled by two hefty brown horses rolled across the dirt along the field. Loftus sprinted through the cornfield and called to the large man in denim overalls moving the team. He reached the dusty road and the man brought his horses to a stop. Several young men sat up in the wagon. The man smiled but tilted his head as Loftus looked over. Hey, Harry and Bill, will you look at this man's clothes? Am I in Appleton? Mile as the crow flies, said the man. You look like you might need some food, mister. Maybe a bath, the guys in back laughed. Yeah, a good meal, I'll work it off, of course. No, sir, when Albert Polsky invites a man to eat, he eats and that's it. Now come on up here, this is my boy Harry and my other boy Bill. Where'd you get them clothes? Loftus shook each man's hand as he climbed atop the wagon. It's a long story. Thoughts of the Camino and the Guampas flashed into his head as he sat. Just a short time ago, he had fought the bargain emness of the Creod realm of planets to the death. Albert shook the reins and the horses plodded forward. Tell me, Albert, 
he said as Albert shook the reins and the horses plodded forward. What year is this? Hey, I think we've just picked up Rip Van Winkle, boys, said Albert, grinning. Why, this is June. It's 1882. Loftus stepped from the farmhouse. In the June sunlight, he scratched his newly shaved face. His belly was full and the hot soak in the second floor tub invigorated his perspective. He now wore heavy Levi denim pants, a cotton jersey and boots. Polsky promised him work on the farm and Loftus eagerly accepted the opportunity. He stood under the flickering shadows of several oaks in the barnyard and stared at Southeast Mountain. The service complex, the antennas, and the fall of humanity on Earth were 166 years away. He was not sure what he could accomplish for the rest of his life in this time period. Over here, Tom, said Albert near the barn. You want to work off that meal, don't you? Absolutely, he said, moving toward the opening. He thought about his tremendous journey across space and time and his fallen friends. I'm ready to work. Good man. I can tell that about a man the minute I meet him. You look like a good worker and I need the help. He walked Loftus around the barn and pointed to numerous black and white cows in the field spread before a southeast mountain. Now, see them cows out there? You have quite a farm here, Albert. You can always use the help. I need to check the fences around the perimeter. We don't want those characters wandering into the hills or back into town. I'd like to see town sometime. Well, we go to the grain store on Tuesdays. And of course, we've got the parade coming on the 4th. Loftus smiled as he envisioned the Civil War veterans marching below red, white, and blue banners. I'd enjoy that. Good, said Albert, patting Loftus on the shoulder as they headed out to the field. I think you're going to like it here, son. This seems like your kind of place. Chapter 94 Loftus overcame the initial muscle aches from working 12-hour days in the field, and when they traveled to town for the 4th of July, he was tanned, well-toned, and rested. He wore a high-collared striped shirt, suspenders, and polished shoes. Polsky and his wife brought all four sons, the sister and husband, and their two sons and daughter. Loftus listened to Polsky laugh as he brought the horses along the wide field, bordering his own farm. Years from now, malls would capture the farmland, and the dirt road stretching ahead would become an asphalt-covered state highway. Automobiles, telephones, and electric lines did not exist here. Chester A. Arthur was President of the United States, and life was slowed down to a manageable pace. At night, people talked with each other at the dinner table and not plopped in front of the central feed screens. The huge maple trees toured town, spread their verdant green branches across the dirt road. Other wagons passed and Albert waved. Without the conveniences, these people shared an interdependence lacking in the future. Loftus looked down the hill as the July haze hung over the valley toward the river. Despite what he had lost, he was sure he could make a good life for himself here. Last year, Garfield was shot on the second, said Albert. Nothing worth celebrating last year. Loftus nodded and caught sight of the red, white, and blue banners hanging from the second floor of downtown windows. He looked down the dirt road again, 
remembering when he was in college and how it took him less than a minute to travel from the mall to the center of town. He grinned, settled back, and was content to see the trees pass slowly by under the puffy white clouds. Well, put on your hat, said Albert as Loftus jumped down from the wagon. Harry handed the small brimmed hat to Loftus and positioned it on his head. There! Now you look as though you're ready to celebrate our country's independence. Loftus grinned and put his hands on his hips and surveyed the townspeople across the green. Below the dignitary stand, draped in red, white, and blue, the ladies wore dark hoop dresses, spiffy hats, and carried parasols. The men were dressed in their Sunday clothes, and children played tag and baseball on the backfield. Here, Tom, said Harry, handing him a frosted mug filled with golden beer. Cool yourself down. Where's that horse pull? asked Loftus as two middle-aged men in blue uniforms walked down the sidewalk. This really is 1882. Well, the pull's at five, and the fireworks are later, said Bill. Loftus sipped the cool beer and gazed up at the building cornice. Boy, that sure tastes good. Loftus sipped the beer and gazed up at the building cornice. 1881. What are you looking at? asked Mrs. Polsky, a round woman with a round face. That building. Well, just finished last year. Loftus remembered that building when it was over 150 years old. I think I'd like to walk around. Well, enjoy yourself, said Albert. I'll be back. He shuffled down the sidewalk and ran his fingers along the cobblestones, sight of the bus stop 150 years from now. To his left, tents were scattered across the green. He waited for several wagons to pass and carefully navigated around the horse droppings. The pungent odor was not as strong as the cigar smoke on the other side. He wandered into the crowd noise, smiling as he inhaled the smoke. The cigar trail led right to a group of men drinking beer inside one of the tents. Loftus abruptly stopped. Zack, dressed in a bow tie and white shirt, looked over an adjacent man's shoulder. His dark eyes caught Loftus and he pulled the cigar from his mouth. He squinted as he slowly moved around the group and toward the opening. God Almighty! Zack! Captain! Captain! Loftus set the beer on the table and first shook his friend's hands, but they soon embraced. Zack's eyes were atypically moist. Captain, I crossed the passageway, but you didn't land at Bathurst Island. I landed in the Nonotoc River. I've been here for a year and a half. I don't think you understand what's happened here. No, I think I do. You and I were brought back here for a reason. Oh, Captain, uh, there's more. Loftus looked to his left. Frank DeLuca caught his eye from the dignitary platform. He wore a vest and brown-rimmed hat and had not grown old. A mustached John, less than 20 years old, held a horseshoe in his hand and was ready to toss it in the pit, but he froze. Loftus's face tightened when he saw Kath's long brown hair slowly sway over the vibrant yellow flowing dress as she crossed the grass. Her intense eyes were fixed on him. He started toward her and hoisted her into the air. Kath! How can this be? How can you be here? I was with DeLuca and John on the boat. We were taken into a dense fog and ended up on the river. Back here, in 1882. I hoped beyond all hope, she said as she cried, kissing him. But I just knew I'd see you again. Welcome back, Tommy. Welcome home. 
Loftus lowered her to the ground and kissed her again. DeLuca and John joined Zack as he puffed on the cigar across the grass. Loftus felt an inexplainable presence all around. He gazed at the mammoth white clouds for a moment and then looked into her eyes as he held her cheeks. I'm never going to let you go. Salvum delicior malubum. What does that mean, she asked. Loftus tightened his brow and slowly gazed across the prodigious billowing white clouds. It means follow your heart. books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.